I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. My guest calling in from Oslo, Norway is Hope Jaren, an award-winning paleo and geobiologist. She's taught at the Georgia Institute of Technology, Johns Hopkins University, the University of Hawaii, and currently she teaches at the University of Oslo in Norway. She's the best-selling author of Lab Girl, and her new book that we're going to be talking about is The Story of More, How We Got to Climate Change and Where to go from here. Hope Jaron, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Oh, it's great to be here. As a geo or paleobiologist, what is the work that you focus on? Well, for many, many years, my question of interest, what really grabbed my curiosity was the moment when, you know, materials that aren't alive become materials that are alive. So you can go outside and you can point to a rock or the water in a stream or a cloud moving above your head. And you can point to a fern growing at your feet or a worm Thriving in the soil or you or your friend next to you and, and say, well, those things are alive. And you can say the first set of things, that cloud and that rock, those are not alive. And it's very, very clear. But at some point, um, there's chemistry and physics and um, a little bit of magic, maybe, that turns the one into the other. And what I always worked on was that moment when the one turns into the other, how those materials flow, um, what sort of catalyzes the whole thing, 
Um, and uh, that was what really, that was where my curiosity was really born and kind of lived for many years. Wow, that sounds like a fascinating topic to spend a whole show on. (laughs) (laughs) But we're actually here to talk about your new book, The Story of More, about climate change. So how did how did you get from working on that uh, transition to life to writing about climate change? Well, you know, scientists write a lot. We write reports and we write papers and we write um, briefings and we write lectures. And so a lot of a scientist's job is really writing. And I always wanted to write for folks that weren't scientists. Because, um, you know, when I get the chance to talk to those folks, I I find them so interesting, mostly because they've walked a different path than I have. You know, the only real difference between us is that I spent many, many hours in a laboratory or, you know, writing in a notebook, and they spent many, many hours doing something else, you know, driving a truck or raising a kid or working in a hospital or figuring out a marketing strategy for something or, or doing a radio show, I don't know. And um, I got so I said, well, what are the most interesting things I have to tell folks like that? Because it seems like they have so many interesting things, you know, to tell me. What is the weirdest um, customer you ever had or (laughs) that kind of thing. And um, the more I talked about what I did and the way I did it, I I could tell when, you know, people's eyes lit up and when I was saying something interesting or when I said it the right way or when I was able to, you know, convey how much I just love doing it, you know, it seems like a goofy thing to spend your life doing, but but it's actually really, really fun. And that kind of got me hooked on the idea of, you know, could I do that through books? Could I tell science not as a lecture, not as, you know, heaven forbid, a sermon, not as, you know, here's me telling you stuff because I'm really, really smart. Could I tell stuff as a story, as the story of what I learned from, from doing all this, from, from walking that different path? Um, could that be a book that somebody who walked a really different path would enjoy reading and would find worth their time? Um, the first book that I wrote was called Lab Girl. And it was about how I became a scientist and it was about what I did as a scientist and the friends that I had and the crazy stuff that we did. And and it was about me making sense of of my life. You know, I'd been running around, moving to all these places and digging in the dirt and none of it quite seemed to hold together. And then I wrote it down as a story and all of a sudden it was was a story. And and that was fun, but... um, I turned, I turned 50 this year, which was an interesting thing. I never thought I would ever get old, <laughs> but I did. <laughs> and I turned 50 this year, and I thought, well, what's my next task? And I thought, what I want to do is think about <clears throat> what it means to have spent 50 years on the planet right now. What does it mean to have been alive for these 50 years? Because this is my, my chunk in the timeline of history, right? You have to write books for yourself, right? Because if you finish it, you don't know if it'll get published. If it gets published, you don't know if anybody will read it. If if they read it, you don't know if anybody will like it. You just have to hope for the best. At the end of the day, you have to write for yourself. So I thought, well, this is is 
would be a great thing for me to get out of life is to try to tell the story of what it has meant to, to occupy the earth during these 50 years. And because I'm a scientist, you know, my approach was to sit down at my computer and to look at how the world has changed over that time period. And I, I looked at all the different databases from all the good people that work every day to compile data and um, measure what society is doing, measure what the world's doing, measure, you know, how many eggs are shipped from South Carolina to um, the to supermarkets in California every third Wednesday of, you know, 1988. And, you know, all kinds of data like that exists. It's, it's really amazing the job that the USDA and the EPA and the National Census and um, the National Institutes of Health and the World Health Organization, um, you know, all those agencies have, have just done so much to, to write down the data of, of this story. And so I spent a couple of years with the numbers trying to put it all together as, as a story and trying to see reflections of what happened in my own life. Um, I don't know if, can I be bold enough to ask you your age? Certainly. You're, you're welcome to ask me anything at any point in this conversation, <laughs> just to keep it, you know, real for everybody. So I'm, I'm 62, and I live in north-central Vermont, which is rural. I live in the woods. I grew up in New York City, so that just gives you a, a very brief background. Okay. Okay. Well, you probably remember getting stuff, you know, out of the fridge or whatever to eat when you were a kid. And um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say maybe you had jelly or jam or something that mom or grandma made, and it was in a glass jar and it had a piece of wax paper and a rubber band on the top and you took it out and you took some and <laughs> you put it back in. Is that is that something you remember doing? Am I off base? Um, not in New York City. In New York City I would I would uh, pilfer change, loose change and I would go down to the uh, the little convenience store right next door and get like hostess Twinkies. No, not hostess Twinkies, but like cupcakes and and Coca-Cola. <laughs> That's what, oh my god! I, I was a street urchin, basically. Oh, yeah, and you were in the big city, right? So you yeah. were a good ten years ahead of of kind of what what we got. How, that Coca Cola you got, how big was it? I think it was eight ounces. It was yeah. we were single sizes in in glass bottles, and it was like I think it was eight cents, and then you got two cents back for the deposit on the bottle. So long oh, time okay. ago. <laughs> okay. And did you bring back the bottle? Oh, of course. Two cents was a lot oh, of money yeah. back then. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, right. So, so okay. So, um, do you treat yourself to Coca-Cola now, Evelyn? No, I don't drink any of that kind of stuff. And I, and I don't eat those kind of things anymore. Oh, my goodness. I need, I need somebody to talk to who's less saintly and more on my level here. <laughs> well, I'm not, I wouldn't say that I'm saintly. I mean, I don't eat junk, junk food, but I, I do indulge in food a lot. But I do it at a more organic and cleaner level. But I, I definitely indulge yeah. myself as much as, as ever. Okay. Well, let me tell you my story then. 
So I've got, you know, my mom or my grandma or whatever that's, or, you know, with help from me, um, reluctant help from me, you know, we spent part of the summer making preserves so that we would have that stuff in the winter. And it came in and we put it in jelly jars and we sealed them with wax. And then when we were using them, we had wax paper and a rubber band and pulled it out of the fridge and used it and blah, blah, blah. Well, nowadays, of course, if I feed jam to my family, it comes in a glass jar with a top or it comes in a squeeze thing that's made out of plastic or whatever. And um, if you think about it, that's just one small, small story. But the packaging on that on that jam changed is my basic point. But think about your whole kitchen. Think about all the stuff you feed as a kid. And you'll see that. Um, across that pattern, the packaging on all that stuff changed. You know, how your vegetables come wrapped, how your meat comes wrapped, et cetera. And that was just one small symptom of the fact that the last 30 years actually have brought the invention of most of the plastics that we see in use today. So 50 years ago, there, there were a few plastics in use but um, the, the, it was really in the last couple decades that just a handful of plastics have exploded onto the scene to the point that now, and people don't know this generally, is that plastic is ultimately made out of petroleum. And about 10% of all the oil that we, that we import and use is actually used to make plastic. It's, it's, a, it's a decent part of our, of our fossil fuel budget. And it's something that... 50 years ago, we were happy living without, or we didn't even notice the fact that we lived without it, really, until you make somebody tell you the story of, of, their, <laughs> of their jam history or something like that. And I try to do that in the book. I try to fill the book with a lot of little stories about how, how things have changed over the years, how you can see it in fine scale in your own life, and it's representative of something that was happening the world over. And that increase in 10% for the plastics was part of a tripling in fossil fuel use that happened all over the world. It was one component of fossil fuel use skyrocketing. And, and so I look at all kinds of things, energy and food and garbage and, and how have things gone up and um, told the story of, of just how the world has changed, and it turned out to be a story of more. And that's what the book is called, Story of More. And I think on some level, we, you know, things change, right? We've all got nostalgia for old times, perhaps. But again, when we look at changes and we look at numbers and we tell those numbers as a story, we see that the changes have a um, pattern to them. Um, here's an interesting pattern. That Can I tell you a pattern that I think is really interesting? Of course, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So there's more people on the planet than there were when I was a kid 50 years ago. There's double the number of people on the planet than when I was a kid 50 years ago. Okay, double. Across those years, the amount of food we produce on this planet has tripled. The amount of grain we produce has tripled. The amount of meat we produce has tripled. Seafood tripled. Sugar tripled. Um, so 
the interesting thing is that we've far outpaced supplying um, food and energy to the population as it has grown. And we still have about a billion people that are undernourished, according to the World Health Organization, um, which is starving. Um, and if we divided up all the calories that we grow with meat, you know, not even switching to a vegetarian diet, if we, if we divided all that up, we could feed everybody well above the USDA recommended allowance. So one thing I came to again and again in the book is that um, all of the suffering and want that we see in the world is caused by our not the Earth's inability to produce, but our inability to share. And that to me was, I remember coming to that number again and again, and um, you know, it's really hard for me to leave my to leave my office. I'm always almost missing the last train home at the end of the day. But I remember that day um, coming up with that and and um, uh, another statistic, which is that um, the amount of food that's wasted, um, edible food that's wasted, is also enough to um, bring all the malnourished up to um, adequate nourishment. Uh, I remember this you know, the terrible tra tragedy of, of poor distribution, I remember setting down my stuff and just saying, well, I have to walk around campus because, because this, is, this is something that I just hit on that's going to change my thinking for a long while. Um, so, so that's a major theme in the book. And it's also true with energy. Um, if we were somehow to equitably distribute all the energy that we use, all the electricity, all the oil we burn, et cetera, if we could somehow equitably distribute that, we could have every person on earth using energy at the standard of living of um, what Switzerland did in the 1960s, <laughs> about 50 years ago. Now, um, I've seen pictures of Switzerland in the 1960s, and it doesn't look so bad. <laughs> you know, people were wearing wool coats and drinking out of small coffee cups and stuff. And I'm trying to make a joke, but really what's at the end of that is, um, you know, we like to talk about overpopulation, taxing the earth, and there's quite a neurosis that's built up around that. But a much, much bigger problem is our failure and our ongoing failure to to move out of the uh, mode of consumption and into a mode of, of distribution. Um, and that's, you know, the whole last part of the book is this idea of using less and sharing more um, and how to even move our minds toward that before we can even start to move our actions toward it. This is what the book has to say, and, and I'm really hoping people will will find something good in it and, and respond to it as well. Well, you're, you're very well known for being a wonderful writer. Many scientists aren't necessarily good writers, so you have a wonderful way of being able to tell these stories in a way that, that lay people can, can really understand and actually enjoy. And one of the things that I found particularly amusing in the book was your relationship with cars and you refer to them <laughs> as a murderous joy-sucking plague upon humanity and I and I love your characterization of the way we 
we scurry around in these endless circles to and from work and, you know, off on vacations, you know, trying to compensate for most of the unnecessary work that most of us do in this endless consumption of energy and resources that is literally getting us nowhere while destroying the world for our future generations and for all of life. And we didn't do this because we're bad people. And there wasn't some villain that pushed us into this. I really don't believe it's that simple. Um, I think we just got caught up in a way of building our lives that we didn't question early enough. And we've got to question it now before it's too late. I, I really sort of take take that approach. And I did, I felt like I had to come clean with the fact that I hate cars so much um, before I I went into the chapter on transportation. Because I really, I really hate them. I mean, I'm, I hate them because so many of them have tried to destroy my life. I was the person who always had just like a crappy car that almost didn't run. I had a car that you couldn't turn left in because like the back door would fall off. So I had to come up with like a complicated way to get to work that only involved right turns. And then it was, you know, stressful if you got into any amount of traffic and, you know, it was just like every car I had, I was just waiting for it to, to just cross that line between being a really useful thing and being just a horrible, expensive problem, et cetera. And, and I'd seen cars like that. Cars do that to everybody I loved, right? You know, my brothers and everybody. We were all, like, dealing with these cars. And I hope, actually, this is one of my hopes for the book. If I accomplish nothing else, I hope that people will write to me and tell me stories of the terrible cars that, that, have, that have tormented them over the years. But cars, it turns out, on another set of levels, cars aren't doing us any favors really they they kill us a lot and the car car accidents are a massive um uh, hazard you know if 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 they weren't useful for something they would be regarded as a great social ill you know your chances of of being hurt or or killed in your car very high and and we're spending more and more time in our cars you know we've built our cities and we keep building our cities such that we need to we need to use them more. Just in the last 10 years in the United States, we've increased the amount that each person drives or rides, if you're a kid or whatever, by 25%. Um, I don't know if you can see it in your own life. Um, I, I don't know. You live in the woods, you know. <laughs> but um, I don't know if your listeners can, can see that in their own lives. But I think it kind of snuck up on us. And so we're spending more time in our cars. Uh, it's not necessarily healthy for our bodies. It's it's risky, and I don't know. In, in a way, you know, the 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 poet, the clumsy poet in me is just you know. This is the ultimate example of how by trying to get more and more, we've trapped ourselves into these metal boxes that take us away from each other instead of toward and integrate us with you know the people we love, et cetera. So. All that being said, please, you know, if you love cars, if they are your hobby and you love classic cars and you love to fix cars that don't, that don't run well, please don't get mad at me. Actually, please get in touch with me. And I'd like to have friends that can fix cars. (laughs) (laughs) Uh 
My last car broke within the first hour that we owned it. It like didn't, we didn't make it home from the dealership before we had to have it towed back. And I'm telling you, this is the level at which uh, cars, they, they hate me and I'm entitled to, I feel like I'm entitled to hate them and smear them <laughs> grossly within, within this book that I write about the world. <laughs> I would love to live in a world without cars. I mean, growing up in New York City, they had the best mass transit system. And as a kid, I left when I was around 11 or 12 years old. But I remember as a kid when I was going to school, we were able to get um, monthly mass transit passes for the uh, buses and subways for 50 cents a month. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. if we yeah. if we ran the world in that way, things would be so so different. So I I totally appreciate your your feelings about cars because I find them to be a real pain in the butt, and they're very expensive. You have to pay for insurance. There's gasoline. There's oil. It's it's just a disaster. It's a total disaster. Uh, and the most popular radio show probably of all time was Car Talk. It was nothing but people like <laughs> going in to talk about how cars are torturing them. But, you know, um, public transportation, it, it's all about how a city is built, right? You mm -hmm. know, New York City was a big, thriving city before the car, mm -hmm. right? And it's our cities that predate the automobile that often have the best public transportation. And that's no coincidence right there. So putting it in after the fact, you know, and this is the hard thing about um, the story of less, which is what the whole last part of the book is, is dedicated to is, is talking about. So how do we, if you agree that you read all this and you decide you want to live in a more equitable world um, with a brighter future, how, how do we start to live with less? And I go through a lot of calculations not with numbers, but told as a story. Uh, what does it matter? You know, what if we could cut our energy use back down to that wonderful, magical period of the 1960s in Switzerland that I keep talking about? Well, if the first world did that, which is kind of an old term, but what I'm really talking about is Europe and the United States and um, Japan and Australia and New Zealand. If those countries could go back to a 1960s Switzerland amount of energy usage, we would cut global energy usage by more than 25%, right? So it is those countries that are really cranking up the consumption and the energy use. So if I've convinced you that, you know, life, <laughs> life in 1960 Switzerland wasn't so terrible, right? And I've convinced you that that might be worth trying to do or might be worth trying to go towards. How do, how do we even start? What are the ideas that we need to wrap our heads around so that we can start, start talking about that? And that's what the last third of the book is about. So how do we do that? And before you talk about how we could get there, is that 25% reduction in global use of energy sufficient to reduce the effects of climate change, you know, to fend off the, the impending disaster that, that everyone's predicting at this point? Yes, it will solve everything completely and forever. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> um, it will not make things worse. 
It will not. And it will buy us some time until we can come up with the better technologies that we really need in order to be able to feed and shelter a growing world. Now, it's a little like, uh, I don't want to say it's the same thing because it's not the same thing, but it's, it's a little like what we talk about with a pandemic is that slowing things down is the key to having things turn out well in the long run. But I really do believe that. Um, I think that the tremendous increase we've seen in recent years, I think there are some precipices that we're sort of on that we could step back from by by that kind of decrease. Um, I think turning the machine around at all the machine like a car. <laughs> Once you do a U-turn, you see a whole different world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, you know, at my heart, I'm a teacher. So I believe that the way you change the world is heart to heart, one person at a time. You show them things that you know and you've learned and you let them decide what they think about it. And then they go forward with that knowledge and change the world. And that's the only approach I really believe in. So, you know, getting back to more concrete methods, there's a lot in the book about if you want to stop using so much energy, where do you start? Where, where is the energy that you're really using? It's hard to tell people, you know, if I say what, what uses the most energy in your house, folks don't necessarily know, you know, if you're going to turn off one appliance, which one is the one to turn off? They don't necessarily know. Um, and a lot of campaigns, you know, getting the lights off, make it sure you don't leave the lights on. Well, your lights use a tiny amount of energy compared to, say, setting your thermostat one degree cooler in the winter and one degree warmer in the summer, you know, or changing your hot water heater for a lower volume model, et cetera. And that's also, you're going to feel that in your pocketbook. I talk about some relatively simple things you could do that could actually cut your energy budget by 50 to 70%, you know, and if you do it right and you do it slowly, you know, your, your family might not even notice. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've definitely, if you're, I've definitely um, taken that, approach to heart i generally keep my house in the winter i heat it to around 60 to maybe a maximum of like 64 degrees yeah yeah and then you and you put on a sweater i mean yeah. do you remember when jimmy carter came on from 72 <laughs> to 68 yeah i i remember yeah, you that well. these fireside chats and i laugh at that I laugh at that because yeah. 68 degrees is, is like hot to me. Yeah. But can you imagine, you know, a president coming on and saying, conserve energy, use less energy? Well, he was um, voted out of office because he took that approach. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. But yeah, but conservation used to be a thing, right? And then, you know, at every crisis since then, we've had our leaders tell us, Whatever you do, don't don't stop consuming. Right. You know, after nine eleven, we were told, you know, go to Disneyland, and yeah, I mean, wasn't that the actual quote? Was you know, if you have a plan to go to Disneyland, you can keep doing it. Yeah. You know, and you know, encouraging consumption as if consumption is the thing that's going to somehow keep everybody safe, 
keep everything going, keep everything stable, as if that's our national duty, I would argue that it's exactly the opposite. It's making us all sick and unhappy, and it's making our world a lot less stable. And some of that is within our control. Some of that are choices that we make privately within our own homes. Some of it is very structurally pressured by the shape of our lives and our jobs and et cetera. But some of that is still choices within the sphere of what we can choose for ourselves and our families. Mm-hmm. And it would be nice if, if people stopped and considered that. No, the other thing is that we've got a we've got a generational divide right now that I think this book can really do something towards healing or bringing together. We've got a young generation of you know the Greta generation that are really passionate about climate change. They want action now. This is a very high priority to them. We've got another older generation that is more pragmatic that knows what it is for years to make taxes reconcile with getting to work on time with, um, you know, building retirement with all these kinds of things. And this book addresses all of those things. You know, there's nothing better than to get those two generations together and go through the house and say, where are we using energy and how can we cut it? And some of the folks might be more excited about saving money and some of the folks might be more excited about about producing less CO2. And that's okay as long as everybody's on the same page and it becomes, it becomes something that unites families instead of divides them. That's, that's another one of my big hopes for this book. Mm-hmm. And this, this new coronavirus thing is having a very disruptive effect on many people around the world. There's also a huge silver lining in it in terms of the effects in relation to climate change. Yeah, and I don't say this very, very often, but I am a scientist. I also pray, and I pray that this is not going to lead to the kind of suffering and devastation that we fear it might if we, you know if we are somehow able to um, do the right things. Um, But you're right, at the end of all of this, which I pray will come sooner rather than later, at the end of all of this, we will be able to have a lot of conversations. And one of the conversations we can have is, what about that time when we all sat down and decided between what we really, really needed to do and what we were doing and how much of it could go, you know? Because that that point of decision is kind of a place we haven't found ourselves yet. And I'm hoping that, you know, after the shadow has passed, which can't happen soon enough, we will have a place where we can really talk about what we gave up during that time and what part of it was really painful and what part of it was, hey, that's worth maybe giving up some more. I hope people come out of it with that perspective and and don't just swing the pendulum in the opposite direction the way George Bush encouraged us to do after uh, 9-11 with the go shopping thing. You know, I'm a hopeful person. I'm a positive person. I think that's my job. (laughs) I teach. I, I deal with young people. 
it is my it is my job and my duty and I believe that they can build the future that they want and I believe that for all of us. So, um, so where does that optimism come from? And I would love for you to talk about what your father told you when you turned nine. Yeah. Well, my dad was an interesting person. I lost him um, not too long ago. He taught at a community college for 42 years straight, which is a long time. He taught a generation, and then he taught their kids. <laughs> and we were in, it was the highest institution of learning in the county, right? So this was in rural Minnesota. And he taught chemistry and physics and calculus and earth science. And he was a science teacher. And so he was not just a scientist. He was the scientist, right? And he had a lab where he taught students and all this kind of business. And that was his whole life was to teach people things and to watch them grow. And they came back as engineers and, and doctors and, and went on to change the world, even though what he did was to sit down with people year after year you know, in his classroom. And he, he really believed that the human mind was so powerful and that the process of learning was so powerful and so limitless that it was equal to any problem we could create. He always thought that by definition, if we can create a problem, we also have in us the elements necessary to solve it. And why did he believe these things? I think he believed them because it was the experience of his life. And I think he believed them because he loved me and he loved his kids. And I believed them because of him. So <laughs> maybe that's just something I inherited. And I'm glad I did. And I tried my best to write it down and to write something in that spirit because I was hoping that was something that I had to give at this moment. At this moment, after 50 years, at this crossroads in environmental history. So in between the climate deniers and the extreme climate alarmists, what's your sense of where we are and where we're headed? And, and how do you respond to the more extreme climate alarmists? I am very, very against motivating with fear. I'm absolutely, I think, that's a, I think that's an abuse of education. I think that's an abuse of stature. I, I've actually heard, you know, colleagues and scientists say that, you know, the answer to, to climate change is we just need the public to be more afraid of it. And I'm absolutely dead against, it's not even an approach, it's just, it's just an abuse of expertise. People don't make good decisions when they're afraid. They just don't. And I also believe that fear and understanding can't coexist, that one drives out the other. And, you know, fear and concern are two different things. Right? And I also think we have such a tendency nowadays to, you know, you pick your hill to die on, you plant your flag, and you just stubbornly shout out your buzzwords over and over again as if nothing else matters. And that's, that's not true. We've got climate change as one of our struggles, but we've got a lot of other struggles before us in this generation. You know, we've got injustice and war and abuse and 
and violence and all kinds of other things. And climate change has to be reconciled with all the other needs and troubles that are out there. Um, just because my expertise is in climate change and not in geopolitical violence doesn't mean that all the things that I have expertise in are necessarily more important, right? So the answer is always always coming together, and the answer is always, always communicating effectively, right? What is the point of my expertise if I can't communicate not just the information, but my values from learning it, you know, my orientation in terms of the world based on the stuff I know. What is the value of my expertise if I can't share that with somebody who doesn't have it? And that's, and that's hard work. And I am proud to say that that's, that's the work I've been doing. It's very challenging, though, for, for the rest of us because statistics can be used to give very different impressions of the same reality. And it's so difficult to inform the general public about what's really happening. And it's also so hard for us to sift through all the information that's out there. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think, um, you know, I think trust is a wonderful thing. I think there's so much information out there. People have to decide who it is that they trust. And being worthy of people's trust is something that you have to work hard for. And I explain temperature rise and I explain CO2 rise and warming and melting in the terms that I know best. And I hope that the reader, I hope that I come across, you know, in my language and in my attitude as somebody that is reasonably trustworthy, that I'm doing the very best to explain what I know based on what I've done. The problem with all of this is that it takes time. It takes time and respect and sincerity for me to sit down and explain what I know to somebody who hasn't walked the path of a scientist. A lot of our conduits of information don't allow for any time to pass. They certainly aren't very respectful and they don't seem very earnest or authentic either. So that's why books still have a role in all of this. You know, there's still a place where we need to talk to each other outside of the Internet and television and things like that. Even radio. Can I say that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there's still at the end of the day, there's something about a book, a paperback book. And only is coming out in paperback because that will keep it affordable and exchangeable and et cetera, et cetera. But there's still a place for conversation to be carried in your pocket for for a few days Mm -hmm. um, and keep you company while you think about whether or not you you trust the person that's talking to you Mm -hmm. at the end of the book you list five steps that we can take and one thing to preface that many people feel that what can i as one person do that that can really make a difference So I would love for you to address that and to talk about the five steps that we can take. Um, I'd like to remind people that doing something is always better than doing nothing. And that is just a personal, I don't know if that's a Midwestern work ethic or what it is, but I tell young people, you know, 
Don't be seduced by lazy nihilism. You matter. You matter because you live in one of these countries with the outsized energy use. You know, you matter because it's not something sinister. We didn't set out to ruin the earth. It just became part of our habits, our unthinking habits of how we live every day. Our story of war, essentially. Yeah, exactly, right? We have electric toothbrushes, you know, all all these things that we used to somehow do with our own muscles (laughs) have become, you know, fossil fuel burning things. The objects of our landscape now use energy. You know, we blow leaves around instead of rake them. And some of them are necessary, but some of them aren't. And, you know, thinking about what, you know, what does this add to my life? What does it not? Um, And I'm a big believer in starting small. You know, just pick one of your values. You know, meat. So, So animals concentrate a great deal of grain. You know, a factor of 10 or something. You take 10 pounds of edible grain and you get one pound of edible meat and a couple pounds of doo-doo, <laughs> to be euphemistic. And so you could look at that as a waste of grain, right? Um, and I encourage people to look for the middle. It's not an all or nothing. It's not, you know, giving up meat or becoming vegan or whatever. It matters how much you eat, how often you eat it, and how much you waste, right? So if one meatless day is possible, then how hard is it to go to two or eating meat just once a day instead of three. Now, those are simple, simple little things, but you add them all together and you've got a decrease of, pretty soon you've got a decrease of 25%, a decrease of 30%, a decrease of half. And that's not nothing. The next part of it is to say, well, look at your values and then look at, you know, the small things that you can do. And then look at, you know, how those small things might scale, Right. So you have a habit associated with one meatless day. What if you could convince your kid's cafeteria to do one meatless day? And there's all kinds of concerns with that. There's going to be parents with other kinds of concerns. There's going to be issues associated with how the cafeteria gets its food, all these kinds of things. You're not going to just march in there and necessarily get your way. But to to bring these practices that you do yourself out into your community and start talking about scaling up. Um, And then, uh, you know, you'll be surprised. I've had people do this and and I've had them honestly surprised at at where they can get if they, if they keep trying, you know, at their place of worship or at their place of school or just at their book club or whatever, you know, if you have a book club over this book, you know, maybe, Maybe serve lentils and see what happens, right? You know, a lot of this is about changing ourselves. A lot of it is about changing what we expect will make us feel happy and whole and not just trying to, trying to fill an emptiness with more and more stuff, which, which is kind of a, a different conversation. But I, I do think there's some of that at the basis of consumption. You know, that there's some problem, some existential problem that we're trying to solve by acquiring more and more things and performing more and more activities. And we're not feeding our soul. We're not filling our soul in the way we would ho- we hoped this would go. Mm-hmm. So getting back to addressing this climate crisis, <laughs> um, I would love for you to talk about 
Archimedes and our tendency to overestimate our potential for failure and to underestimate our chances for success. Yeah, I mean, that's what I... <laughs> you're quoting me! <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, I think that every generation is consigned to grapple with its own Armageddon, and this is ours. You know, past generations have dealt with end-of-the-world scenarios where everything was breaking down around them. And solutions came, and they were perhaps too late for many people, but they were not too late for all. And we need to see ourselves as a moment in history, crossroads of the environmental movement, these 50 years on this planet, people that matter, people that are here right now, and people that will be in the history books someday. And those history books include a lot of stories, but they don't yet include us. And now is our chance to decide what's going to get written about what we did with the earth. I think that's daunting, but I also think it's so, so incredibly exciting and empowering. And I see it in my students' eyes when I talk about it that way. I tell them they matter. They're going to be here longer than I am. And learn, learn, learn as much as you can so that when your time comes to act, you'll have clear eyes and a good understanding. Mm-hmm. I think it was Lao Tzu who, who said that a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step so that we don't have to think in terms of solving the whole thing all at once, that, that it's enough to just think about the first step. I do. You know, I think we underestimate our ability to do these things and benefit in ways that we don't expect. Feeling more hopeful, feeling more whole, feeling more like we're part of something, feeling less anxiety about the future. I think those are immediate benefits that we might see long before we see the population of bees pick back up, population of butterflies pick back up, things like that all those things that we do want to see in the long term, or at least those decreases stop. But there are other benefits to be gained. And um, as a teacher, again, I know that those are within our grasp as well. Mm-hmm. And to get back to Archimedes, I'm, I'm not sure that everybody has learned who Archimedes was and, and what his, his famous principle was, but could you, you talk about that? And the power well, of that. Archimedes was into yeah. Archimedes was into levers. That's one of the things he talked about, and um, that was back back when people were figuring out the rules around force. You know, how do you make something move? How do you make something move without an obvious push? You know, they were talking about the planets and how they all move around each other. And, and he did some calculations and was talking about the power of a lever. And you know that, you know, if you've had lots of experience on a seesaw and it matters, you know, how well balanced you are and how many people are on each side. And if you've got an awful lot of small people on one side, you can move, you know, a boulder and it matters where you put the middle and all this kind of stuff. And he said, you know, to take this to a really, really big extreme, that if he had the right kind of lever and a place to stand, he could move the entire earth. You know, and he's right, you know, mathematically, <laughs> he's actually right. And that's a wonderful symbol for any 
problem that seems impossible, any, anything that seems so big and so overwhelming that it's impossible, is that there must be a tool. There's got to be a tool. And maybe it's a fantastic dream-like tool today, but those dreams can come true tomorrow. And that's the poetic side of our communities. And I think a lot of the climate alarmists are basing their their predictions <laughs> on our current technology and current knowledge and are not considering the creative possibilities of the near future. Yeah, but I think, you know, fear and concern are two different things. I think concern is warranted. I think if we freed up an awful lot of people to work on these solutions, we'd be a lot better off, right? You know, we've got scientists that want to do their jobs. We've got agencies that are a little bit hobbled in this organization right now. Um, uh, there's whole swaths of, you know, NASA and the Department of Energy that would love to be working on solutions like this. And yet there's been a lot of dismantling of the expertise and the structure of those big scientific agencies in the last um, four years. And you can probably guess what I'm, what I'm driving at. Um, we need those solutions, but it's work. It's work people are willing to do, but but it's work we, we have to dedicate ourselves to and we need, you know, the people behind us and we, we do need the strengths. We need to bring to it the strengths of our traditional agencies and it's very concerning that those agencies are being degraded and are not in good shape. Yeah. Um, scientists traditionally tend to stay out of politics, but it seems that there's no way to avoid politics at this point. Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, democracy is a wonderful thing because there's so many different people with so many different priorities and, you know, the system is set up for multiple voices and when it works, you know, you hear a lot of different voices. Um, I can't pretend to have a voice for every, every important issue, but the issues that that really concern me about right now are that, you know, the agencies that I used to write this book, you know, the data, the gigabytes and gigabytes of data from the Department of Energy, from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, from the National Institutes of Health, oh gosh, the Environmental Protection Agency, um, the census, the, the farm census, you know, all of those places um, are in serious jeopardy in terms of, um, you may have read about reorganization of the directors, laying off of scientists, sort of shrinking those entities. You know, 50 years from now, we'll need to do those reanalyses again in order to see if our climate change solutions are working. And we need people to collect the data today. We need those agencies to stay in place. They're like trees. You know, chopping down a tree is a lot easier than growing a new one. And for me, that is the most concerning thing that I've seen come out of the four years is really an active effort to degrade and sort of debranch those agencies, which are full of hardworking, well-meaning scientists, you know, trained and diligently doing their jobs. Mm -hmm. Well, Hope, Jaron, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I want to thank you for having me on. Um, I hope people will get a chance to pick up the book. 
um, either from their independent bookstore or their library or another place. And I hope that they will find something good in it. And I hope that they will find their way on the internet to my website, thestoryofmore.com. And maybe let me know if they did find something good. So I've been talking with Hope Jaron. She's an award-winning paleo and geobiologist. She's the author of Lab Girl, and her new book that we've been talking about is The Story of More, How We Got to Climate Change and Where to Go from Here. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Take a look at the stars Catch a glimpse of the way things are Making contact Making contact Making contact Making contact Smell of sweet fresh oil on skin When you move on me like the tide coming in this magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening and until next time have a wonderful week we'll